0: So, sorry about that. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today and we rejoice that you are the rock of ages. That you are for us that refuge of the soul that we can find in You true hope even when things seem hopeless. And Father, we thank You that there's great freedom in having You as our hope, that we bring nothing to the table, but You do it all. When You work And do things that we cannot do. Father, the pressures of this life, the internal conflicts we face, they are beyond us, but they are not beyond You. We take great hope in having You as the rock who is unchanged, the rock who is eternal, the rock of ages, who is the hiding place for us. Lord may your word be for us today a soothing medicine. Father, may it truly be that which provides hope for us as we face and discuss some of life's most darkest hours. Father, work in through your spirit using the word today, may we set aside our concerns and cares for this coming day, this coming week, the anxieties and, and troubles that we've had from the last week, and may we focus upon you. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 87, um, yes, I have, and if you look in your, in your bulletins, I have us going through Psalm 87 through 90. Um, there's quite a bit that we're going to cover here today. We're not going to read all of that. Uh, I'll make reference primarily to Psalm 89, and then the majority of our time is going to be spent uh, in the last verses of Psalm 90. I'd like us to discuss how these psalms and other places in Scripture, as we're going to be looking at next week and the week after, how we can have hope for the empty soul. How there is hope found for the empty soul. Depression. It's a term that we don't like to talk about. And particularly among Christians, we perhaps even have the the mindset, well, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be depressed. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't have these issues. The reality is, if we look at the statistics, depression is replete across our society. It affects individuals of every age, every social status, every ethnic, um, every ethnic background. Depression is in epidemic proportions and throughout our society. And I think, particularly as we walk through the period that we know as the, the COVID years, the focus and, and the reality of sadness and depression came forefront to our eyes we were we were locked in we couldn't go about our business we couldn't go to work and do the things that we typically used to do and so we naturally reverted into ourselves and there was a great period of time where there was sadness and darkness that came upon us I think of uh, Winnie the Pooh, when I think of this, you think, like, well, how in the world is Winnie, what, what does Winnie the Pooh have to do with a sermon on depression? Well, there happens to be a character that A.A. A. Milne, in his um, very, very uh, uh, brilliant um, wisdom, brought to show that there are people that just seem to deal with sadness a lot. Who is it? Eeyore. Eeyore. And, if you didn't know this, Winnie the Pooh is back in the public domain, so I can legally use this today, so... You know, it's just interesting to me to, to, to note how, how the fourth chapter of the first Winnie the Pooh book is entitled, In Which Eeyore Loses a Tail. And as the story goes, that Eeyore somehow lost his tail. And of course, as we understand how Eeyore is, he's always down and out, and oh, this is terrible, oh, this is the end of the world, oh, these things are bad. And, and then what we find is as we go through the story, Eeyore gets his tail back. And there is a moment where he is jumping and flipping and doing somersaults, and he's happy. And then, of course, we know that because Eeyore's uh, distressing circumstance is fixed, he's never sad again, right? No, in fact, the next, you have one chapter in between, chapter 4 and chapter, that chapter 5, I can count. And then chapter 6, Eeyore is sad again. And the reality is is that what Eeyore faces, what he finds, it can become a reality for many of God's loved children. That we can fall into patterns of sadness, patterns of darkness, and even find ourselves despairing. And we oftentimes wonder, how can we help people in these circumstances? What should we tell them? And the Scripture does provide very helpful um, messages for us to help those in these things. But sometimes, well-meaning believers will seek to encourage us, and they'll just sort of throw out a Scripture reference like it's some sort of magic pill. So somebody's down, and you just say, well, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or James is often used. Well, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials and difficulties. But I'd like to just pose to you a question that I think we all have come to recognize. We understand that the Bible calls us to rejoice in the Lord, but really what if you try and you can't? What if rejoicing in the Lord from your perspective just doesn't Work. What if you're just stuck in what I'd like to call a famine of the soul? When we feel stuck in the emptiness within, what should we do? Now sometimes we think that changing our situation is going to fix that problem. And as even A.A. Milne pointed out, Eeyore fixed his situation but very quickly he was sad again. And so often we put our hope in the change of our circumstances and certainly there is, pla- there are places where we can, if we can improve our circumstances we should do that but ultimately that must not be where our hope is. We can have everything going for us and we can still feel darkness deep within us. Some of the most Wealthy and successful people in this world are also some of the saddest and darkest in this world. So what are we to do when we feel stuck in sadness, despair, and despondency? And what we're going to work through is a complicated emotional spectrum where the scriptures call us to realize the truth we know to be true. That our hope... Is found in the Lord. Even when our souls are famished and empty, we can still find hope in our great God. Now, if we look in Psalm 87, look with me in verses 1 through 7, and we're going to really focus on verse 7 here. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of thee are you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said... The, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers of the people, this one was born here, there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. What we recognize here as we come to verse 7 is a message that we see from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And that is that true satisfaction, true hope is found in the Lord. There's no denying that the message of Scripture tells us to find that great hope in Him. And we see it reflected in this festal uh, psalm. This festival psalm that is given where there is this scene of people rejoicing in how God has given blessing and abundance to Zion, to His people. And, And there is this scene where there are singers and dancers in the streets and they are rejoicing that God is their spring, their source of hope and satisfaction. And so the Scriptures are abundantly clear. True satisfaction is found in the Lord. And this is an important truth for us to recognize even when we are in those moments of despair and despondency. Psalm 42, 5-6 Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God! For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. In fact, these words are uttered two more times in chapter forty-two and forty-three. Chapter forty-two, eleven: Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The same thing again in Psalm forty-three, five. And so we see that message echoed in what we find here in Psalm eighty-seven. The singers and the dancers are shouting and rejoicing. All my springs are in you. My hope is found in the Lord. This is all throughout Scripture. We know Psalm 36.9 tells us that with the Lord is the fountain of life. It is by the means of His light that we see light. Isaiah speaks of how God with joy draws water from the wells of salvation for His people. And then that beautiful scene at the end of the book of Revelation, where God has set right all things. He says, it is done, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the scene of the new Jerusalem is of a restored Eden, a garden in which there is abundance of the water of life that we can come and drink of freely whenever we desire. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, points out that He Himself is the fountain of living water. And so the truth of Scripture is abundantly clear that in the Lord we have all that we need. In Him we have abundance and provision and satisfaction that can carry us through any circumstance in life. This is the Word of the Lord. It is true. But Psalm 88 comes very quickly on the heels, obviously, of Psalm 87. And it, it's interesting, the juxtaposition of these two psalms. Because we have this, this wonderful festal, uh, festival um, environment that's described here in this wonderful statement that God is the fountain of living waters. But then we come to Psalm 88, and Psalm 88 is often called the darkest chapter in Scripture. And what this illustrates to us is that truth does not necessarily change our emotions. Truth does not change our emotions. Look with me in Psalm 88. Now, again, these, these two psalms are written by different individuals with different circumstances, but I believe they were compiled under the direction of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. And so I think we need to read 87, 88, 89, and 90 together as God is working through us with the complex emotional range that we have as His creatures. Psalm 88, verse 1, begins again with a recognition of the truth. O Lord God of my salvation! I cry out to you day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. In verse 11 and 12, he speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord, his wonders, his righteousness. So lest we forget or get the idea that the psalmist here is somehow completely bereft of an understanding of the goodness of God, he is not. But yet, he does not feel that truth. Now, one of the things I loved, I guess it was about a year and a half, two years ago, where we finished our study of the Psalms, is that the Psalms are, are so honest with the emotions that we face as humans. And so while he understands and recognizes that this is true, there are real feelings of despair that the psalmist describes here. Look at verse 3. My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, or to the grave. I can't think of a better description of someone who was facing despair and despondency and depression than that. He goes on and talks about how he's counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. I can't take it. I'm like one sent loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You! You! have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? afflicted and close to death. And this is important. How long had this writer been in this position from his youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness, or I think it's better translated there. My only companion is darkness. What feelings of despair we see here. Now, we don't know what it was that was causing this feeling among um, in the the writer here, Heman the Ezraite, and. and And it's really not our purpose today to discuss why we find ourselves in these particular moments of darkness and despair. There are many possible reasons. It may be the consequence of our own sinful, foolish actions. It may be because of the sinful and foolish actions of others done to us. Some may be the result of God's discipline on His people. And some just part of His sovereign will. Whatever the reason is, the answer is the same. And that's the wonderful hope that we find in this passage is there's not a different answer to the various causes. The answer is the same. Again, I just want to quickly review some of the descriptions that he has here. And I want you to think to yourself, have you ever felt like this? Or are you now feeling like this? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your troubles? He talks about that in verse 3 and 9 and 17. Have you ever felt like you are in the depths? That there is such a deep sinking Um. Wait upon you. Have you ever felt like everything and everywhere you look is darkness? That there's a darkness in the depths of your very soul? Maybe you felt trapped by your circumstances or even your feelings. You feel trapped in your feelings. Perhaps you feel forsaken. Forsaken by men And the psalmist here is honest. Who else does he feel forsaken by? God. And he goes on to describe that he feels dead. There's a deadness about him. I think this list of things, overwhelmed by troubles, in the depths, darkness, trapped, forsaken, deadness, I think we're seeing someone who is dealing with depression. Not just a, and this is not just a simple momentary uh, position for him, but it is a lifelong principle. He says that it has been fought with him, this affliction has been with him from his youth. So from a young man, he's felt helpless. And maybe that describes you. Maybe, that's, maybe you're here today or maybe you're listening to this online and, and you feel that way and you felt that way for a long period of time. And in the midst of all this, you're someone who, who knows the Lord as your Savior, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. But yet, if you notice, who is it that he lays the blame for some of the things he's facing? To God. You've done this to me. You've put me in the depths of the pit, he says in verse 6. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've cast my soul away. And so there is a perplexion. There is a, a, a not understanding this God who is supposed to be all compassionate and faithful and loving and kind and, and, and strengthening us. And yet, this is what we're experiencing. This is nothing new. Some of you maybe have heard of the hymn writer William uh, Cooper, or it's, it's spelled Cowper. He was someone who very much of his life he dealt with what at that time was called melancholy or depression. And he would talk about a frowning providence. That it seemed like every circumstance in his life was filled with the providence of God that was not to benefit him, but almost to harm him. And so we come to verse 80 chapter 87 verse 7 and it says this that God is our salvation God is our satisfaction but then we come to verse 8 chapter 88 and it's like I'm not feeling it It's true but it's not changing the way I feel Chapter 89 is an interesting passage. We're not going to take the time to read it today, but I encourage you to to look through it. It is a passage that that begins with such hope, showing the faithfulness of God to Israel. And then it's like it completely switches once you come to verse 38, where God has now cast off and rejected the psalmist and God's people. And so the end of Psalm 89, I think, is very informative to us. And I think it, it can give voice to how we feel when we face depression. Look at verse 49 of Psalm 89. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Where is it? to which You, by Your faithfulness, swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how Your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which Your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of Your anointed. And the psalmist, as he works through this, he clings, but I would say barely, he clings to the hope that God is the only source of blessedness. And he says that, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So these psalms are put here to help us in times of darkness, to help us realize that there are others who have come on before us And they know the truth. But it doesn't necessarily change how they feel. So what are we supposed to do? If the truth doesn't change our feelings, how are we supposed to deal with despair and despondency and depression? And I think... Psalm 90 provides for us a way to work through these things so that we can recognize that there is hope even if we can't feel it. Even though we don't feel the truth, there is a reality about the truth that it is still what? Truth. And this is what we find when we come to Psalm 90, which is written by who? Moses. It's a psalm of Moses. It's interesting. Moses, you know, we think of him as the strong, powerful leader. He dealt with depression too. I mean, he had to lead a million people out of Egypt. And what did those people do all the way along? Whined and complained. Moses gets to one point where he goes to God. He's like, listen, I'm done. You take these people, kill me. That is how bad things were for Moses. And we laugh at that, but that was how he really felt. So what does Moses have to teach us? We're going to focus mainly on verses 12 through 17, but I want us to read the whole psalm to get a sense of what's said here. And then I want us to see how we, even though we don't feel it, how we can remember that there's hope even when we don't feel it. Look with me, Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And there's a wonderful hope that even though our circumstances change, guess who doesn't? God. He's the same God from everlasting to everlasting. You return man to dust, and say. Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even, by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. Boy, Moses is being really honest here, isn't he? They are soon gone and we fly away. And every time I read that, I hear a banjo. This world is not my home. I'm just still passing through. I'll fly away, you know. Sorry, that was completely unrelated to anything here. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What's interesting here is Moses does not, does not change his description of who God is. God is still the everlasting. We are still but dust. We return to dust. God is still holy. He judges sin. And some of our misery is a result of that sin. And that our lives are full of toil and trouble and then we're very soon gone and we fly away. And so Moses now draws to conclusion some things for us. And again, there's a lot in Psalm 90 that I could pull out and we, could, we would be here till after the Super Bowl is over this afternoon, all right? It's not, the purpose here isn't to exposit all of Psalm 90, but to really look at these last verses. What do we do? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What's really interesting here is the first thing that Moses points us to is that we can find hope in the brevity of life. You say, hope in the brevity of life? Absolutely. It's interesting here that he calls upon us to number our days as though this is a learned practice, not a natural thing. And I tell you what, that really is the case. Now, the older we get, the easier it is for us to number our days, right? But nonetheless, it's something that we have to learn to do. Scripture again and again points us to the fact that our lives are brief, very brief. Solomon describes the brevity of life in Ecclesiastes. James speaks about how our life is but a what? Vapor, whew, gone. You ever blow out a candle, and you see that little, little, little bit of smoke that goes up, and then what happens to it? It doesn't exist anymore. That's your life. You're saying, "Boy, pastor, you're, you're not really encouraging depressed people here today." Now, I think there's a twofold effect that that this counsel gives us here. First of all, it does call us to recognize that time is a limited resource we're not we will live forever but our time here on earth is limited and so we need to redeem the time because the days are what evil but i also think there's a reality here particularly as we understand this in where this is in the Psalter that life this life is not all that there is your suffering will come to an end if you're in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We find this throughout Scripture. Paul talks about how he has a light, what type of affliction? Momentary. And then he places our eyes on something eternal. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We saw this with Peter. Peter. We rejoice in the gospel even though now for how long a while? A little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And Paul again reminds us in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Moses comes to this conclusion after considering the brevity of life. Again, if we look up in verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And praise the Lord, I know there are some of you here who are really strong, and you're past that 80 mark. Praise the Lord for that. But life, and particularly the sufferings of life, are not all that there is. We have waiting for us a glorious end in our Savior. We will be brought before His presence. And as the scripture tells us, He will wipe away every tear that we face in this world. There will no longer be death, there will no longer be mourning, there will no longer be crying. They will no longer be pain, for these former things have what? Passed away. You realize that when your life, that vapor, that candle that has gone out, and that smoke that disappears, when that life disappears, so do all of these other things, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So there is hope in the brevity of life. But we're still here. And Moses is not calling upon us to have some morbid uh, preoccupation with our death. Like, I'm just trying to get through so that I can die and go to heaven and be with Jesus. That's not the purpose. In fact, Paul himself said, look, it was better for me to die and be with Christ, but I know that I have a purpose here on earth now. So how do we work through this? And that's where the rest of this psalm, the psalmist calls us to find hope By calling for grace. Remember Paul had that thorn in the flesh? The messenger of Satan that was buffeting him? Every time I hear that word buffet, I'm like hungry for a buffet but nonetheless. And what did did God tell Paul? He said, my what is sufficient for you. My grace. What does that grace look like? I think Moses gives us some hope as to what that grace looks like. And the first thing he calls us to do is to call for the grace of God's presence. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? What's amazing to see here as we work through all the all the turmoil and all the all the emotions of sadness and despondency and despair that we've seen in these passages, what we come to recognize is that the answer is still, I need Jesus. I need Him near. I need His presence. Return, O Lord, the psalmist calls out. That is, he's calling for the grace of God's presence in his life. The psalmist recognizes that relief comes primarily through God's presence with him. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You are what? With me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Moses puts these words before Israel as they're about to step over the Jordan into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 31:8, as they're facing. Terrible circumstances. They know that some of them are going to die in war. They know that the the path ahead is going to be difficult. But Moses encourages them. He says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be what? With you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So, do not fear or be what? dismayed. There's wonderful hope in the presence of God who walks with us. He has promised that He will never, never leave us or forsake us. So Moses says, return, O Lord, how long? And he calls for the grace of God's presence, but he secondly calls for the grace of God's compassion Look at verse 13, the second half. Have pity on your servants. Moses does not present God's presence callously, but he presents him as a God who comes mercifully to his people. The root term that's used here in the original has the idea of breathing deeply. And it hints at a physical display of emotion. He's calling upon God to have that compassion and care for Him. We must never forget that God is not unfeeling toward us. He is compassionate upon us. James, in James 5.11, speaks of how Job had patience, right? Remember he says, consider the patience of of Job, his steadfastness. And then he says that this was brought about because you saw the purpose of the Lord in that. And what was God to Job through the entire thing? What was God? He was compassionate and merciful. God is compassionate even to rebellious people. Listen, even if your circumstances or the pain that you're feeling, the internal darkness is a result of your own sin, which it at times can be, in Christ that does not change God's compassion for you. Notice what he says to, What Hosea says to Israel. And Israel, not doing pretty good when Hosea's writing. But look at the love of God for His people. How can I give you up? O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows what? Warm and tender. Now I even think of this scene in the life of our Lord Jesus. His friend, Lazarus, died. And Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. And he comes and he sees this scene. And he sees Lazarus' sister weeping. And he sees that the Jews that had come with her, what are they doing? They're weeping. And what happens to Christ? He's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled his heart aches for the pain he sees on the faces of those weeping around him and he says where have you laid him and they take him to the place lord come and see and there he is at the tomb and the emotional range of what christ is feeling here i don't think any of us can understand He's not only sad for what those around him are are facing, but he's also, I believe, sad for seeing the effects of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. And we have the shortest verse in the English language here. Jesus what? what? And so as we are facing and we're, we're, we're struggling with the darkness within, we can call for God to come and to bring His presence. And with that presence we find that we want to see His compassion. That He's a God that does not break the bruised reed. I've recommended this before, but there's an excellent Puritan work called The Bruised Reed that works through and shows how God is a merciful, compassionate savior Thirdly, we see the psalmist calling for the grace of God's satisfaction. And this is what I find interesting. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as for and for as many years as we have seen evil it is amazing here that the psalmist puts his hope in what god does to turn his heart to find satisfaction in him this is why it is grace maybe you have spent your life trying to turn your own heart, to make yourself happy, to get yourself on a better place. But the reality is that we must let God do the work. Sometimes the best thing we can do in these moments is to get out of the way and to let God be the one who satisfies us with His steadfast love. Moses' view here is important. When does he want God to satisfy him? What time of the day? In the morning. You know, they say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? You've heard that? I've heard that that's not true. I've also heard that flossing isn't really all that important. Um, So I like to believe the the, the stuff because I never eat breakfast and I'll tell you, I never floss my teeth. But, the truth that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, I would say that your most important meditation in the morning needs to be on the satisfaction that Jesus is. You set the tone for your day by what you think about when you wake up. And this is what Moses points us to. Listen, when you wake up in the morning, when, when, when your eyes open and you lean up in bed, or maybe just when your eyes open you're like I don't want to get, I don't want to lean up yet. What is it that you're thinking of? What are the first thoughts that come into your mind? Is it the responsibilities you have at work? Is it maybe you hear the kids clamoring downstairs. They're making their own breakfast and you're like what kind of mess am I going to come down to? Maybe it's projects at work. Maybe it's a, a conversation you had the night before and, and there's difficulty there. Maybe, there's, maybe you're thinking about friends that, that you seem to have grown distant from. Maybe you're thinking about your own relationship with the Lord and how you've grown distant from those things. And, and all of those things become the first thing you focus on and then we wonder why our days are filled with sadness and darkness. And so Moses says, satisfy me in the morning. The first thing, may your satisfaction be my hope. What help can we have for all those other things if our first thought is not on the Lord? So let me challenge you very practically. When you open your eyes in the morning, think upon Christ. Find in Him that satisfaction. As Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you what? Living water. And what's the thing about living water? It never runs out. We'll be looking at this particular interaction next week as we consider more about how we can put into practice our hope in Christ. So we call for the grace of God's satisfaction. Fourthly, we call for the grace of God's joy. Now, I want us to be very clear here. Joy is not the same thing as the emotion of happiness. I think sometimes we take those two words and we put them together and we think that that joy is happiness. There's a, a... terrible cartoon that I that was on TV. I didn't watch when I was growing up, but they had this song. Happy happy joy joy, happy happy joy joy. Right? They're not the same thing. Joy can exist alongside of sadness. I think we we, we think, how can that happen? But the reality is that is exactly what he's saying. He wants us to, he says, we find the satisfaction in God in verse 14, so that we may rejoice and be glad. How many of our days? All of our days. What did he just say about what our days are going to be like? Toil and trouble until we die. And he's not telling us that, oh, yes, yes. I get to have toil and trouble all my days. That's not the idea here. But rather that there is a joy, there is a satisfaction, there is an understanding that God is working all things for good, that His purposes are always good, and in that we can rejoice even when we face the difficult circumstances. We don't have to like the circumstances. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 4, 6 through 7. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Boy, sometimes the many who's saying that is yourself. There's nothing good in my life. So what do we do? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The point that he's making here is joy is not tied to circumstance. So that he can be and, and experience joy, satisfying joy that is better than even if he were the richest of the farmers in Israel. I can have more joy as God's light is shed Upon me. And then the final thing we see here is we call for the grace of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 16: Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. What is the work that is being described here? It is the gospel. Let your work be shown to your servants. The work of God on his behalf brings hope. Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, and then notice this last phrase, in which you what? Stand. Listen, you may feel like you're being crushed by the circumstances of life. You may feel like there is no hope, but listen, the gospel puts you on your feet. No matter what else happens, you are loved by the Father in the Son because He has died for you. He has given His life to take away your sins so that you may have His righteousness. You are God's child. Stand in it. This is how you can have hope. And again, notice what that gospel is. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And this is likely the oldest creed that exists. This probably dates to 20 to 30 years after Christ has died and possibly even before that. So we talk about, like, here about the Nicene Creed or the, the Athanasian Creed or the Chalcedonian Statement, those things. This is the oldest. What is the oldest statement of faith in the Scripture? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Death, right? And yet, if you're in Christ, death has no sway on you. That is a source of untold hope. That is a source of immense comfort. We can stand in this. And though... The circumstances of our life may appear to be a living hell. We are victorious in Him. That is our great hope. This is how He has shown His great power and work. By raising Christ from the dead. So, when God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient... We, that grace is seen in the presence of God, in the compassion of God, the satisfaction He gives, the joy that He provides in the gospel. This is all great. But even these glorious truths can still leave you feeling empty. They're truth, but they don't necessarily change your feelings. So, so how can you, where can you look to find the fortitude to work through these things? And that is where we find hope by seeking God's strength. Look at verse 17. And this is really where I focus and see God's grace in view here. Let the favor. What is grace? We've said it very, very concisely. Grace is unmerited what? Favor. Let the favor, let the grace of the Lord our God be upon us. And Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. See, there there is a real temptation that when you find yourself in despair, in despondency, without hope, there's a real temptation to run from the Lord. Because the truth isn't changing your feelings. And so you say, why am I going to bother? Why am I going to bother if it's not fixing the way I feel? And the danger of that attitude is you run from the very thing, the only thing that can bear you through those times. And so I hear the sound of of Moses' voice echoing as he says this twice. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He is fully and completely dependent upon God in the midst of this. He's not looking to anything else but to find hope in Him. Life will be overwhelming. Moses is clear in this passage. Toil and trouble, that's life. But we can endure. Even if you feel darkness and despair, even if you feel despondency and deadness, God himself establishes our hands. And Jeremiah reminds us that this God who establishes us is the one who's made the heavens and the earth by his great powers and by, uh, by his outstretched arm Nothing is too hard for him. Isn't that, doesn't that bring such hope? That you can work through your emotions, you can work through the darkness, and God is strong enough to bear you through it. So, we've seen how these psalms call us to be honest with our emotions, to realize the truth, to not compromise the truth, to not run away from the Lord, but to work through it as we look to God's grace to bear us up through this. But let's say you're here today and you feel like the psalmist of Psalm 88. You feel that deep in your soul. And and you want to get past that. And you want to to implement these truths into your lives. What, What should you expect? Well, I think, first of all, you need to recognize that your feelings are not automatically going to change. I have no, no thoughts of grandeur that this sermon is going to solve everyone's depression. But the truth is still there. The hope is still there. In fact, the Scripture is given to give mankind hope. Depression, in many ways, is the absence of hope. But there's always hope in the Lord. And so remember then, too, that God is unchanged by our changing circumstances. Listen, there are lots of things that you're going to face. That trouble and toil that you face in your life is constantly shifting. And sometimes the cycles of life that bring you to a place where you feel depressed, they come in because those toils are really bad and sometimes for extended amounts of time. Now we we can seek to improve those circumstances as God gives us ability and and changes those things, but ultimately realize the fact that you're suffering right now, does that change God's love for you? That's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 8. He says he is convinced that there is nothing that can separate him from what? The love of God. And then he lists all sorts of terrible things. He says, but none of that changes how God views me in Christ. Which I think is important to issue this warning. Those who are without Christ in this world have no hope. if you're here today and you've turned from Christ, the only hope that I can offer you today is to turn to Him. To cry out and trust in Christ by faith. To turn from your sins and turn to Him and there find all the hope that's needed for every circumstance in your life. Thirdly, I think you need to recognize that joy can exist alongside sadness. The goal is not happy, happy, joy, joy. I think sometimes we make that. or We, we, want, to, we want to come in and, and have the big smile on our face and everything's great and behind it there's just sadness. There, I see the, these advertisements for an antidepressant and, and I think it so aptly describes what depression is. They hold up a, a sign before their face and it's got a big smile on it but behind the sign is the sadness they have within. Listen, I don't want you to pretend to be happy, but I want you to recognize the joy that you can have even though you're sad. That joy can exist alongside sadness. As James says, count it all joy when you meet various trials of various kinds for you know that there's goodness that comes about this. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness having its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in what? Nothing. God is working through your suffering, through your sadness, an ability for you to not have to need anything to find all that hope in Him. And then I think we need to recognize and meditate on that truth that God never leaves us without hope. We see it in... Psalm 42 and 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. As Paul ends the book of Romans, he says this, May the God of what? Hope. Fill you with all joy and peace through believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may what? Abound in hope. Not in easy circumstances, not in surface level happiness, but God provides for us the ability to abound in hope. This is where we find hope for the empty soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that your word provides a true and clear perspective on our suffering and the emotions we face as we suffer. And thank you that you do not leave us without hope. Father, we're weak. We're troubled easily. And Father, the troubles of this life can be overwhelming. They can drive us into a cycle of despair and despondency of lacking hope. Father, help us by your grace to see the hope we have in you. May we today be honest with our emotions and where we are today. Father, you know you know the emotions and the feelings of everybody in this room, of all those watching online, of those who may listen to this sermon at another time. You know how they feel. Pour out your grace to them. Grace in your presence. Grace in your satisfaction and your joy. Grace in your compassion. Grace in your gospel. So that we can walk through the darkness of this life with immense hope. Father, may we abound in hope found in you. Take your word. Apply it to hearts and lives here today. We pray this.